one of the chief temptations of life is to hide what we should reveal and to reveal what we should keep secret. To hide what we should reveal and to reveal what we should keep secret. The moms among us on this Mother's Day know the frightening capacity of young children to reveal family business that really shouldn't be revealed. I want to watch a mother tense up, just watch her four-year-old say, My mommy says... <laughs> Dennis the Menace cartoon depicts Dennis and his mother eating a meal in their home with a visitor. And Dennis says to the woman, I'm surprised you're eating so much. My mom says you have no taste. But on a more serious note, moms can also attest to their children's propensity to hide their wrongdoing, refusing to repent, while trumpeting their good deeds and self-promoting pride. This isn't something that moms need to teach, and it's not something that is limited to children either, is it? One of our chief temptations is to hide what we should reveal in a spirit of repentance and to reveal what should remain secret in a spirit of humility. We return to the Sermon on the Mount today. If you'll find your way there in Matthew chapter 6 or just listen in as we work our way through the text, Jesus counsels us here specifically with respect to this second propensity. To bring into the open what should remain secret in humility. Even more pointedly, he speaks to us about the temptation to perform religious service in order to impress others and to gain their approval. Jesus counsels us to reject the self-deluding hypocrisy that uses acts of devotion to him in order to promote ourselves. Positively, and there's wonder in this, positively, he counsels us to seek the Father's reward by keeping acts of devotion appropriately secret. As we come to chapter 6, the thesis statement is found in verse 1. Beware, says Jesus, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This statement hangs like a banner over verses 2 through 18. And in these verses, Jesus teaches three chief religious practices of pious Jews. He addresses these chief religious practices. You'll notice in verses 2 through 4, if you just skim down through, he addresses giving. And notice how he ends that section as he talks about giving to the poor particularly. Verse 4, he says, So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 5, he picks up the second religious activity of prayer. And addressing that matter ends at the end of verse 6 with that phrase again. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 16, he goes to the third illustration, and that is fasting. And ends there in verse 18 again with this phrase, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So clearly this section holds together around these three illustrations, each ending with the same conclusion by Christ. Now you say, what about verses 7 to 15? We skip those. In a sense, if you take this flow from verse 1 to 18, in a sense, verses 7 to 15 are an interruption. They're a rabbit trail, so to speak, and what a rabbit trail. They are profound words about prayer. And we have here the Savior's model prayer. It would be wise for us to take verses 1 through 18 together then on all of this consideration. But because of the significance of verses 7 through 15, we'll take those up, Lord willing, next week. And because of our complete and utter ignorance about fasting, we're going to pick that up the week following that, Lord willing. What on earth is fasting? There's a medical reason is about the only thing that hits Americans. That's not a good thing. So we're going to concentrate on that. Just so you understand, verses 1 through 18 revolve around these three illustrations of acts of righteousness. And we will consider, by God's grace, two of them here today. Jesus' burden is this, verse 1. When you worship God in religious acts of devotion, make sure that your heart motivation is pure. Number two, do not perform these deeds in order to gain the reward of being recognized as devout by others. Number three, beware the grave danger of doing so. You will forfeit the reward of God's approval. This is his statement in verse 1. Now, immediately, there may come to mind an objection. This doesn't seem to fit what Jesus taught us in chapter 5, verse 14 and following. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Notice what he says very pointedly. So that they may see your good works. That they may see your good works, live out your light before them. Does that not conflict with what he's saying? As you give, as you pray, as you fast, do so in secret. We have to understand what Jesus means. And we have to fill in the right blanks. I think the key to it here is in verse 16 of chapter 5, the so that. Why is it that we want to live out righteous deeds before this world? It is so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a sense in which we should live out righteousness so that God is honored. But coming to chapter 6, there is a way in which we can live out acts of devotion so that we gain attention for ourselves. This, Jesus condemns. And he does so now addressing this thesis by addressing this first of three chief acts of ritual devotion in Israel. And I'll admit, and we'll mention this again, there's a significant gap between us and the world in which they lived. We'll have to bridge that gap, but let's first understand it. So here's example one, verse two. 
concerning giving to the poor. Verse 2 of Matthew 6. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you give to the needy, he does not say if you happen to give, but when you do. This was understood to be the duty of every Israelite in that day. The Jewish culture caring for the needy was not a function of government and secular taxation as such in that society. The poor were supported through the religious gifts and sacrifices of God's people for that purpose. Some gifts were indeed stipulated by the Mosaic Law, so there were expectations, but much rested on the free will giving of God's people to take, care, to take pity on and care for the poor. We do not understand this entirely because we have a governmental system that is pouring out resources upon the poor every day. But in their setting, there were people, many of them, walking around hungry. In fact, a poor person was not permitted to partake of the giving that was taken at the temple or at the synagogue if they had two meals that day. If they had enough resources in money or in food to feed themselves twice that day, they could not be helped by the synagogue or the temple. So you're talking about people who really are hungry. And many, many people in that context would have been living one day at a time to feed themselves. So if you can demonstrate that you can only eat one meal today, they would be provided for one meal. There were other gifts that you had to demonstrate that you did not have 14 meals. Two weeks worth of meals would allow you to, to receive some other help. So this is the setting there. A lot of people walking around hungry and giving to sustain the poor was one of the most objective and highly regarded acts of worship in Israel at that time. When you give to the needy, though, Jesus says, sound no trumpet before you. Does he mean this figuratively or literally? We're really not sure. There's been a lot of discussion about how he meant this literally, that they would actually sound ram's horns before them as they gave at the temple. We don't really have any proof of that. But figuratively speaking, at least, he's saying, don't toot your own horn. Perhaps that's where we got that phrase. The hypocrites do just that. They are hypocritical in what sense? There's different kinds of hypocrites. They're hypocritical because they present themselves as ambassadors of God's compassion for the poor when their real motivation is to be praised by others. That's the hypocrisy. And the really tough thing in this situation is the hypocrisy is supported by the poor. They like it. They're receiving benefit from it. And so perhaps the poor and the givers are hypocrites. They're self-deceived that they're wonderful people to be praised by others. Jesus says, don't do that. Do not do that. They give in order to get. And they've received their reward, he says. They have received their reward. What he means is they give to the synagogue in order to take 
the appreciating notice of others, and they receive that and only that. That's their intention to get recognition. That's what they get, period. What they sacrifice is the approval of God. My, our good friend, Brother Shambhu Day in India, told the story of an American donor who gave to help a gospel ministry there in India. And India's custom is when, when you write a check, you write a check uh, in giving to the church, you may say $100 and no over 100. Do you do that? Or is that just me? But you, you put that no over 100. Somebody taught us to do that somewhere because there's these, cynic, these sinister people who will add cents at the end, you know, that... Um, so you, you just do that. Well, in India, they put the word only. Hundred dollars only. That's the way. They just so nobody adds to the end of the check. A hundred and fifty dollars. Just say a hundred only. Well, this donor received back a, a receipt from the ministry that he helped, and it said whatever two thousand dollars only. And he was livid. He was so angry that they would send back this receipt to say that he had only given that much money. I mean, first of all, it was just foolish. He just didn't understand what it meant. But what he didn't count on is it revealed his heart. What he wanted was the praise of those that he was giving to, and he got it. It wasn't very satisfying because he didn't understand, but it revealed the true motivations. That's what Jesus is looking at here. When we give in order to be seen as a good person, when we give to, to gain the approval of others, we are sacrificing the reward of God. We're getting just that. He has a much higher vision for us, verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I, I don't know, but maybe somebody snickered when he said that. I mean, it's meant to be humorous on some level. The secrecy in our giving should be so great that our left hand didn't even see it happen. A figure of speech indicating the secrecy with which we should so serve God. The contrast, of course, is to the hypocrites who want everyone to know what they are doing when they give at synagogue or temple. But you should not even let your left hand know what your right hand gives. Not only did others not see, my left hand was not shown the gift my right hand put in the offering plate. So the idea may be something along these lines, self-forgetfulness of our own giving. Not only that others don't see it, but we're even self-forgetful of our own giving. So he says, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now, let's think about this, how it applies to us. We have to discern what Jesus is saying in the application. We noted that uh, in the past in this sermon, if we take it. In the wrong way, we will have no armies, we will have no soldiers, we will have no jails. Remember that? It's not what Jesus was saying. And so here, he is not saying certain things, he is saying others. 
it seems to be that when we don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, it might apply something like this. We give our gifts to the church and to the cause of Christ. But don't keep a record of yearly giving that you continue to pull out and review, patting yourself on the back. That's, in a sense, letting your left hand in on what the right hand's doing. Always reviewing year after year how much I've given. What's the point of that exercise? There's a sense in which it might be right for us to push ourselves and to consider what we're giving. Maybe on the other side of it to realize some of us really ought to consider what we're giving year after year and realize how little it is, how little devotion to Christ it really indicates. That's another issue. But here, it seems it would be appropriate application. Don't bring those reports out and review them year by year. You must know what you give to church. It's appropriate for our deacons to tally what you give and submit a report at the end of the year. There's nothing wrong with us passing an offering plate and noticing that somebody put something in it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And as a matter of good stewardship, it's right to secure every tax break charitable giving affords. But here's what he's saying. Once we've given, once the deacons report your total gifts, file the document and move on. And obviously, you don't ever share it with someone else. It's to be done in secret. For those who give sacrificially, who know the joy of that discipline, do not fixate on what you've given in worship of God. Just keep giving and move on. When we give secretly, when we give with no interest in anyone seeing what we give, notice the promise there in verse 4. Our giving is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God sees all. He knows all. He is everywhere present, which means I cannot give a gift apart from His complete knowledge. And for those who walk in faith, that is enough. We notice it's a promise. He will reward you. A stark contrast with the hypocrites whose reward was the praise of men. God's reward, a different Greek word than the word translated reward in verse 2, is on a different level. Give in secret that the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now again, there's often an objection here, and it's probably a good place for us to address it. How is it any better to give in order to receive God's reward? Isn't this just as self-serving? I give money to receive the reward of God. Aren't I just paying to get that reward? Isn't the very same thing, whether I'm getting the reward of people's acclaim or God's? It all depends on what the reward is. The reward is not a swankier mansion in heaven. The reward is not the applause of a host of angels on the golden streets. The reward is the joy of heart we experience in giving to advance God's gracious agenda in this fallen world. Small reward, a real one. But far more significantly, the reward is God's approval. It's His smile. To suggest that serving God 
for his reward is self-centered, is really just pride. To think I should give to others and God should not reward me betrays that I think my money is my money. Every penny I possess is God's. We are merely the stewards of His money. We move it around to serve His kingdom. And any thought that as we do that with His money, He is not going to have anything to say about it is just pride. It's just saying it's mine. So let's set all of that aside. Giving in order to gain the reward of God is means giving to receive His approval as a steward of His resources. So the reward is God Himself. The reward is a smile and the approval of the Lord. It's not self-serving, it's love. Now Jesus moves then to the second act of devotion with a very similar line of instruction. This is how we're to give secretly. We're to give in faith, trusting that God is there, striving for the approval of God, not needing the approval of of people, indeed, not fishing for it. So with prayer. Verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, it's not if you pray, but when you pray. And again, the contextual gap is rather sizable. In Israel at that time, the Jews were called to pray in the morning, at 3 p.m., and in the evening. And ram's horns would be blown, and Jews would stop where they were to pray. And there were people who had this very perfectly timed. And they would walk in the streets to come to that wide road, that crossroads, and right when the ram's horn sounded, guess where they stopped? Right on the corner where everyone can see them. And they offer their ritualistic prayers, memorized prayers often right there on the street corner to prove their righteousness. We inhabit a very different world, don't we? You walk on the corner of the street and start praying and, you know, you might be hauled off somewhere more likely than that people think you're doing a wonderful thing. It would be seen as very strange behavior to pray in public in our setting. What I wonder then as we apply it to our setting, is Jesus saying this woman in this Norman Rockwell painting is sinning? Pray secretly. Do not pray to be seen. Have you seen this picture? Great, great painting. Back in the day when strangers shared tables at a restaurant apparently is she sinning is this what jesus is thinking in his mind this woman is violating my counsel and is praying in public to be seen i don't think so at all now i don't think that woman's real and so you can you know fill in any blanks you want to as to who she is but let's say that she is a devout believer and her grandson's working on it, right? What she's refusing is to be intimidated and to cower to expectations. 
I think Jesus would commend her for revealing what fearful pride would press her to hide. I'm a follower of Christ who gives thanks for the food that he has provided. See how very different it is in our setting than in the cultural setting that Jesus is addressing. He's striving against the pride that flaunts religious deeds in order to gain attention. So even though in their setting it was public, not in ours, the application for us is much more when we are among other believers. Out in public, such as this woman praying, it's probably more an issue of courage and letting your light shine that people may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's my judgment. You're free to draw another one, but we can debate that. But what Jesus is, I think, addressing in our setting, in our culture, is where we pray to gain the approval of others. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to gain attention from others. And I say, you see it again there at the end of verse 5, he says, I say to you, they have received their reward. What they want is the praise of people. They got it, period. But what do they sacrifice? Verse 6. Well, first, the instruction, verse 6. In contrast, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Pray to your Father who is in secret. The room, uh, there's, there's different ideas there that could fit under this fairly general word. It might be a storage closet. It might be an inner room. It could be a bedroom. Most of the homes in that day would have been single rooms. But if you had an inner room, if there was a place to get away, if there was an upper room where you could shut the door, the point is don't pray to be seen. Pray to your father. Talk to him. Not to gain the approval of others, but to gain his ear. So go to this room, shut the door in privacy and in sincerity. Again, when somebody says, well, Jesus is saying we should never pray in public. We just did that here this morning. Paul Perdue led us in prayer. That was wrong? Is that what Jesus is saying? It's wrong to pray publicly? Of course not. We catch the spirit of what he is saying here. He's not contradicting the rest of the Bible. Genesis 4.26, believers from the godly line of Seth began to pray together. 1 Samuel 1, we see Hannah praying at the tabernacle and God answering her cry. We see Solomon praying a very lengthy prayer recorded in Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 8. Daniel opened his windows and his enemies could see him praying. And God commended him and protected him. In Acts 4, the early Christians are praying together there in Jerusalem. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, Paul commands the local church to be led in prayer by godly men. This is a statement there. So the church is to be praying in corporate gathering. The Bible repeatedly commends public prayers. So Jesus is not denying the good and proper place of public prayers. He is condemning the sort of prayer that pretends to be personal conversation with God while I'm looking out my one eye to see who's recognizing me. Don't do that. That's what he's saying. My first year in seminary, I rented a room from an elderly widow on the second floor of an even more elderly house. I was not wealthy, I can tell you. 
I shared a room or there was a room across the hall that another seminary student was renting. And I would get up in the morning sometimes and he would be there in his room visible from the hallway on his knees praying. And I I really respected that. I thanked God for his devotion. And I want to be the last person on earth to criticize a young man who wants to seek the Lord in prayer at the beginning of the day and has a discipline to do so. Just shut your door. Just shut your door. You don't need to hide the fact that you're praying in deceptive ways. But shut your door. When praying privately, talk to God. Don't be peeking out of one eye to make sure others see you. That's the point. I once attended a wedding rehearsal dinner at a restaurant. It wasn't a, you know, set off to the side, room to yourselves kind of thing. It was just right in the middle of the restaurant. And this, um, well, I won't say anything about it. I'll just say this guy, this pastor was asked to lead in prayer for the meal in the middle of this restaurant. He got a chair, set it up at the end of the table, stood on it, and started praying in front of the entire restaurant, standing on this chair. I think he received his reward. All he wanted to do, I don't think I'm being judgmental, I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying, you stood on a chair so all the restaurant could hear you to impress the believers in front of you while you got your reward. God wasn't thanked for that meal. This man thought that he was looking really good to a few of us, I guess. And in the mercy of God, When he stood up, there was a ceiling fan there that hit him in the head. I hope it wasn't irreverent, but I just said, thank you, Lord. It hit him right in the head. It was moving. It's just silliness. We want to commend prayer. We want to commend courage in prayer. But we should never use a religious act of devotion to gain the approval of people. That's the principle we want to take with us and run with us and run with from here. Now, there's a rather sizable cultural gap, again, between the religious practices of the first century Israel and our day. Now, we can certainly be tempted to give to the Lord's cause and to pray so that others can see us. There's a direct application, certainly. We must be aware of these dangers. We must be aware of the danger of doing so. But in our secular Western culture, acts of religious devotion are expected to remain largely private matters. Keep your religion to yourself. And I was probably moved as much by my culture with this man praying on the chair than I was by anything else. That's our world. Praying on street corners, flaunting our gift-giving, We face temptations in these areas, but nothing like the way Jesus' listeners did. For us, the battle seems to be more subtle. But we too 
are tempted to reveal what should remain secret so that we look better in the eyes of others. Let's own it. I want others to see me a certain way, and there are things that I can do to gain that approval. And that's tempting. We are called here to display our good deeds before others. But we must be careful not to serve God as a means of gaining their approval. So this is a danger for our church. We have a church that's deeply committed to the cause of Christ. There are families in this assembly, they don't just come to church to tap into it here and there. They are involved in the work of Christ worldwide. And they see every day of their life getting up to serve Jesus in whatever their calling is. Whatever their job is, wherever they live, whoever they're talking to, they are committed to advance the cause of Christ every day for those kinds of people, for us. We've got to take this to heart. Do I minister for Christ in sacrificial ways? Do I give of my wealth? Do I give of my time and my abilities? Do I invest in the cause of Christ? And really all the time I'm kind of looking out of the corner of my eye and wondering who's noticing. You know who must face this more than anyone else? Are those that stand and preach. Those who pray before the assembly. Those who are doing things as deacons, elders, teachers that can be seen. We must ask ourselves, do I serve for the approval of God alone? And weed out this selfishness and hypocrisy. On another trajectory may even apply to you, and I say this with sincerity and I trust with grace, but you may be here today for one primary reason, and that's to satisfy someone else. You gather weeks here and there, coming now and then perhaps, or even every Sunday, and you're really just here because you want someone else to see your body here. to fulfill an obligation. There's a danger for all of us, however we land, to prostitute the worship of God to the benefit of my own reputation. Don't do that, Jesus says. Don't do that. You may be here in self-dependent trust, seeking deeds of devotion to God that are actually little more than striving to feel good about yourself. Don't use Christ that way. What you need to do is to meet Him and to find that His approval is superior to all other commendation. For those of us who know Christ and long to serve Him faithfully, sincerely, and humbly, we must ask ourselves, why do I serve? No, really, why do I serve? Would I keep doing what I'm doing to serve the cause of Christ if no one noticed? Would I keep serving the cause of Christ as I am if all I got was opposition and no praise? Do I really value the approval of God as ultimate? Or am I serving my own purposes by prostituting 
his worship for my own ends. To serve God for the reward of his approval, free from the tyranny of gaining the approval of others, is the model that our Savior himself set. After this sermon, at the time of this sermon, but certainly immediately following, Jesus became wildly popular. People loved his teaching. He was saying things about the hypocrites that they all wanted somebody to say. This guy had the courage to say it. Don't you pray on the corner just to get people's attention. Don't trumpet your giving so that everybody looks at you. They knew what the hypocrites were doing and they loved Jesus for saying it. He became a very, very popular teacher. He preached the Word of God. He taught the people and they loved Him. But then there came a day when the world took offense. And the hypocrites who ran the show didn't like what Jesus was saying. And pretty soon he found there was some serious pressure against him. He wasn't gaining their approval. And then there came that day when even those who followed him abandoned him. Remember the crowds now beginning to turn against him. And they were there right up until the end of his life, certainly. But many of the crowds leaving him, many of them going away. We don't want this teaching. This is too much. What did his disciples say? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. He still had that loyal core of individuals who followed him to the end almost. And there came that moment in the garden where he was betrayed and hauled off by the Roman authorities alone. And there came that moment on the cross when Jesus was entirely forsaken. There were those that loved him. There were those that were certainly there in support. But those loyal disciples, those adoring crowds were all gone. And Jesus ends his life with no approval from anyone. Pity, concern, but no approval. Except for the approval of the Father. And that was enough. He died alone, saying, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. It is finished. And all of it for the joy set before him to receive the Father's approval. That's all we need. And that's all that we should serve to receive. As the Apostle Paul said it, I've run the race I've finished the course. There is laid up for me the approval of God, the reward of the Lord. May that be all that is necessary to drive us. And may we take every word of acclaim, every ounce of approval that people give, and turn it back in offering to Him. Because in the end, the only approval that we need, the only approval that will matter, 
is that God sees us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. We get to that place, we'll have everything. It doesn't matter if the world turns against us, if we come to that place, to the approval of our Father, it will be everything. May we live for it and love for it. Let's pray. We're thankful, Lord, Jesus sets us straight here. He doesn't pull punches, but he gives it to us the way we need to hear it. We're thankful for that. We're thankful there's no false advertising. He taught us that if we love the world, we'll have approval. But if we love him, there will be many who despise us. He taught us that to hang on to life for all it's worth is the best way to lose it. And that we'll gain life if we give it up. May we give up right here and now as a sacrifice to your name and to your honor, the praise of people. And I pray that it would be our commitment as a church to so devote ourselves to the cause of Christ that it really is not significant what people think. It's not significant who notices. It is enough to gain your approval. By your grace, work this in our lives. And for anyone who does not understand that Jesus was abandoned for their sin, I pray that you bring them to that light and to that saving grace today. Through Christ we pray. Amen.